Since the late 1800s, Volunteers of America has been working to assist many of New York City's most vulnerable populations, and that effort continues today in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. I recently talked with Terry Pettit. She's the president and CEO of Volunteers of America Greater New York. We spoke via Zoom. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. George, thank you. It was a pleasure to be asked, and uh, I look forward to an interesting discussion. So for those not familiar with Volunteers of America Greater New York, tell me about the work you do. Certainly. Volunteers of America Greater New York is an affiliate of a national human services organization called Volunteers of America. There are 31 affiliates across the country. We are the oldest and uh, almost the largest in the country. Um, We have 80 human services programs in the New York metropolitan area, Hudson Valley, and northern New Jersey. And um, our mission calls for us to assess the needs of the community and create programs to help the most vulnerable among us uh, reach their greatest potential. Now, I have to tell you, I'd like to go back 124 years ago to our founders and say, really, that's going to be our mission? That's a really hard mission to, to, to take care of. But uh, for 124 years, um, we've been doing it um, and helping thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, we are a very structured organization because of our complexity. We uh, take care of in our programs, um, oh, eight, nine, ten different special needs populations. We have 19 different government funders, and we have lots of corporate and private partners in the community that help us do our work. Let me get back to the history for a moment because it is an organization that dates back to the late 1800s. What is that history? Who founded the VOA? Well, our founders are Maud and Ballington Booth. And the Booth name, of course, is synonymous with the Salvation Army. Ballington Booth was the son of William Booth, who was the general of the Salvation Army, and Maud and Ballington were both Salvationists and belonged to the Salvation Army um, in London. And uh, they tried to really kick off the Salvation Army in the New York area, and it wasn't going well. So General Booth sent Maud and Ballington over here to turn the heat up a little bit. And they were so incredibly charismatic that by the time they got off the Queen Mary, where they were in the lower bunks, but when they would walk on the deck, people would talk to them. They had calling cards to every estate up and down the Hudson. And in a very, very short period of time, um, had garnered financial support to really grow the Salvation Army, the headquarters, for example, on 14th Street. Well, General Booth was thrilled about this, and he came over and said, that's great, let's mortgage all this real estate that you know you've put together so that we can grow the Salvation Army in the Middle East or another area. And Ballington and Maud Booth um, decided that this was America's commitment and it needed to be an American entity. And um, as crazy as it sounds, there was a coup. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, Ballington and Maud um, left the Salvation Army and they started Volunteers of America. Now, I understand they made the announcement that Cooper Union, they launched the VA. We have tons of really local history. They lived in Montclair, New Jersey. They're buried at Gates of Heaven. Um, I mean, they're they're just 
Maud became the little mother of the prisons at Sing Sing. Um, she was a um, demure, tinier woman, but had such great presence. And um, I'll tell you one story about Maud. Um, when she was in London and she was trying to get the people in the tenements to welcome her and engage her, uh, she would scrub the steps of the tenement with lye every day and they would come in and out on their way to their factory work and um, she would say good morning and good morning. And it was by showing them that she, she would care for them at the lowest depths that she was able to engage them and turn their lives around. And that's really core to what we are. Um, we engage at, in the weeds um, to let everybody know there's no hierarchy in humanity, um, that you know, we have to help everybody who's in need, thus the difficult mission. <laughs> now, the name of the organization would lead one to believe that it is made up of, well, volunteers. Is that the case? No, um, it is a positive and a negative, uh, the name. There have been debates in my 18 years at Volunteers of America about is the negative, you know, um, a little bit higher than the positive. In 1896, when we were formed, uh, remember, it came from a military structure in the Salvation Army, and that's how Maud and Ballington were raised. They still wore uniforms. There, there were generals and Volunteers of America and everything. A volunteer was someone who stood up and did what was needed at the time it was needed. And very similar to what we would call a draftee or somebody who enlists in the army. Uh, when you go back into military history, uh, volunteers is a name really used for people who would go to the front line and be on the front line. It's absolutely evolved to mean many, many different things and people confuse us all the time. Our affiliate alone um, has uh, about 1,275 full-time employees. Do we have wonderful, wonderful volunteers that we depend on? Yes, but uh, across the country, we have thousands of employees. And you know, um, uh, we are the largest um, entity in the country for supportive housing for seniors, uh, run nursing homes, assisted living, in, in our region, we have schools for children living with um, uh, issues related to being on the spectrum of autism, domestic violence shelters, homeless shelters, uh, dealing with issues related to behavioral health, both on the um, mental health side and the substance abuse side, frail elderlies, veterans, uh, you name it. Uh, and, and right now in this pandemic, we're looking at what we do and understanding that we are really the foundation for many, 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 many. Yeah, so as you mentioned, you help so many vulnerable populations from people who are homeless to veterans to domestic violence victims to people living with HIV AIDS. Where would you say the needs are greatest right now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic? Oh, um, I think the general population needs help. And so if the general population needs help, you can imagine those who have um, struggled um, because of their economic background, their lack of education, undertreated, underdiagnosed mental illness, substance use issues, uh, the issue of social isolation and loneliness. Uh, I just finished this morning a, a two-hour seminar um, put on by Adelphi University in coping with loss during um, COVID-19, and, and it was for social workers. And everybody on the call talked about how we 
how do we deal with the tragic optimism um, that we need to incorporate in caring for those out there? And, you know, I'm being a social worker to my friends. Um, they have never reached out to me as a social worker before. So, you know, I can't tell you that one of the groups that we care for is struggling more than others. I will tell you that two, three of the groups are a little bit more vulnerable to the negative aspects of COVID, and that would be our frail seniors, those living with HIV and AIDS who may have some um, uh, co-occurring uh, other illnesses that would um, cause problems for them, and those living with mental health issues um, who, to begin with, had high anxiety about life. So I would prioritize it that way, but believe me, I think we're all in need. Are you providing services in all five boroughs? Oh, absolutely. Well, right now, I must say to you that um, we have a school in Staten Island uh, for um, uh, children on the spectrum and other uh, intellectual and physical disabilities that has been closed um, since March, I think, 16th. Um, but that is our hub in Staten Island. Um, we are very intense in programming in the Bronx. Um, uh, Ruben Diaz and his administration and um, even before that, um, has been very gracious in identifying the needs of his community and allowing us to come in um, and help them with what they've identified. I think we have more than 16 programs uh, in the Bronx, uh, but in every borough. What are among the programs that you have in the Bronx? Um, we have uh, supportive housing for low-income individuals. We have a, a very large early learning center with 22 classrooms for children ages three to five. We have scattered site case management supported programs for people living with HIV and AIDS, severe and persistent mental illness and substance use. Uh, we have um, major programs for supportive housing for veterans. And we will be opening an absolutely state of the art new senior apartment building um, uh, late fall, um, maybe in December. Uh, and then we have a shovel ready to go in the ground to build another one. So it's, uh, it's housing, it's community-based case management, it's schools, things like that. With many of your programs being residential, what steps are you taking to keep residents and staff safe amidst COVID? Well, you know, we are, um, as I mentioned earlier, a very structured organization, and um, we had a continuity of operations plan, a coop plan that had uh, served us well, not only with Hurricane Sandy, but with the SARS and the scare of the avian flu. And so it, it was adapted for COVID-19. And the plan really calls for four elements. Um, the first is communication, um, that uh, if you're not transparent with the people that you're dealing with, uh, their anxiety level goes up, and I'll tell you how we do communicate. Um, the second is collaboration, that uh, it is management's responsibility to be talking to people outside of the New York area on a regular basis to learn from them and to see if they're doing things that perhaps haven't hit our region. Um, the third is control. Uh, we want to make sure that our clients feel control, that our staff feel control, and uh, in our communication, we give them ways uh, to feel control. But the most important is care. And you will notice that um, all four of the C's are verbs, they're action words that we take very, very seriously. Um, 
one of my program directors so eloquently said to me one day, I said, well, what are you doing differently? You're, you're taking care of 335 people in your building. So what are you do doing differently with COVID-19? And he said, um, we are exaggerating our caring. And I said, well, elaborate on that. He said, we always see people as individuals but now we're seeing them as individuals and we are present in our discussion with them, even if they walk by us in the cafeteria, um, that the care is just um, over the top. Um, some people may step back from it, but we're going to do it so much because they're alone. So, you know, if you live in one of these buildings, um, you know, the units aren't big, you, you're socially isolated, um, you have to socially distance, you, we give you masks, we give you cleaning supplies, um, we're supplying food. If you're told to quarantine, we are your family and we are at your door every day with three meals a day, uh, checking in on you. Um, the other day I heard a very sad story that um, a gentleman admitted that he was having some difficulty and had COVID symptoms. And so uh, we have a protocol, we called EMS, they came in and he refused to go to the hospital. And two of my staff stayed with him even after EMS left, stayed with him for an hour in a very, very small confined space. And they did their very, very best to ease his anxiety and get him to get help. We weren't victorious, he didn't get in an ambulance, but at least he allowed us to do telehealth and, and get him on the phone with somebody. But now those two individuals, they're, they're home under doctor's orders, self-quarantined, mm. because he eventually tested positive. Mm. So it's those three Cs. I was going to ask you the question, have you had enough PPE? Have you dealt with any shortages there? Um, at the very beginning, um, I think we feared running out more than the reality of running out. Uh, and now each of our funders, the beauty of having 19 different funders as each of our funders We'll get a call from uh, the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Okay, we have masks for your programs who we fund. Um, so through all of it, we're, we're doing great. <laughs> we got a, a 5,000 uh, masks donated that had rock stars on the, on the, the face, which is huh. very, very much not like Volunteers of America. <laughs> and, and the staff called me and said, don't worry, Terry, they're reversible. So we can reverse them. I said, okay, okay. Um, so, no, we're doing okay. Cleaning supplies was tough. Non-contact or what we call, you know, the thermometers, uh, that was a little scary for us. And, and now we're looking for disinfecting machines um, so that we can spray down large areas. So we've made a lot of progress in preparing for what we call reconstitution or recovery. You referenced communication and the importance of communication. So what exactly are you doing to communicate with residents? It's a three-pronged approach. Um, we have a letter that goes out that I write every Monday, uh, and it goes to all 1,275 staff members. And it tells them the theme of the week. It lets them know how many clients have tested positive, how many staff have tested positive. Um, George, you should know that we lost three staff members to COVID-19. Huh. Um, wow. We did not hide that. Uh, two of them were very young. It doesn't matter how old the third person was. He was a cherished employee uh, who put themselves on the front line during all of this. And I mentioned transparency before. 
so the three programs that lost um, the three staff members, within 24 hours, we committed that if a client tested positive, if a staff tested positive, or someone passed away, um, we follow HIPAA guidelines and we don't say who it is, but we share with clients and staff the reality of the environment in which they're living. Um, the second anyone has symptoms, we go in and disinfect the area and the person is isolated or removed from the program depending on the funder's guidelines. Every Wednesday in English and Spanish, using the same theme of the Monday letter, all of the clients get a letter. We teach them how to control their environment and to remind them about telehealth and remind them about social distancing and to tell them it's absolutely normal to feel the way that they're feeling. What would you say are still among your biggest challenges at the moment? Um, staffing. Uh, we've been very fortunate to uh, identify um, two or three really solid professional temp agencies that have been able to um, fill in some gaps for us. But in week 10, the first staff who became sick are now returning. Now, you know, you know, I was in awe that they were on the front line from day one. I'm absolutely um, so filled with gratitude and admiration that after being so sick, they're coming back. Um, and so, but you know, all programs except for our schools, which were closed by the government, are operating, essential services are being provided. Um, the care that is the linchpin of what we do is being provided. And we are the family. We are the family for those who don't have one. And um, it takes an awful lot out of the staff in good days. And you can imagine what it's doing today. While this crisis is unprecedented, you mentioned that VOA certainly has gone through other emergencies, Superstorm Sandy, 9-11. How have they helped to inform you in what you're doing now? I'll give you an example. Um, I had a board call the other day and I won't name the corporation, but there was a CEO of a very large corporation on the call. And I gave them a COVID-19 impact update and where we were, what was our inventory, how many people had tested positive, what was the recovery plan. Um, and he said that his corporation was two weeks behind VOA. So the one thing that we have learned is to get out ahead of this like you wouldn't believe. Um, people, you know, at the beginning when we were doing it, I'm sure people thought, oh, it's overkill. You know, here goes Terry with her overkill. But I am telling you, we, we did it with Hurricane Sandy. We did it with the potential transit strike, if you remember years ago, the um, terrible power outage that we had. And so we have learned that communication, transparency, um, moving quickly, ordering supplies ahead of everybody else, <laughs> things like that. So um, rapid, decisive decision-making. Many of us have heard and seen reports about an uptick in domestic violence incidents. Have you seen an increased need for your services during the pandemic? Wouldn't I love to say yes. Wait till you, this is a really fascinating thing that the general public doesn't uh, understand. Because of people's COVID-19 fear, people are not leaving their batterers at the rate that they were leaving them before. So we have ample capacity and room in our domestic violence programs and shelters 
and we're doing our best in talking with people. Uh, there's a hotline that people can call to encourage them, regardless of COVID-19, they'd be safer with a safety plan in coming um, out of the situation. But right now, many, um, many people in the New York area are not. And um, I think as we stabilize, we will go right back up to capacity. And we are actually opening um, two new shelters um, uh, in a very short period of time. While they're not leaving, are they calling? Are you getting at least calls? Well, we are, we are not the hotline folks. Um, okay. Another agency does that. Uh, we are uh, have weekly conversations with the funders who are fabulous um, with this, and they're doing outreach and marketing. You've seen the marketing. Um, it's, you know, and uh, on the NYC alert that we get on our phone, we're doing everything we can, um, you know, to encourage them. VOA runs a program called Operation Backpack that provides a backpack filled with grade-specific school supplies to homeless students before the start of the school year. Obviously, we don't know what the start of the school year will look like, but how is COVID-19 impacting that endeavor going forward? Well, you know, this is going to be year 17, and we have never let the city down yet. Uh, we provide, as you say, uh, school-age specific supplies to every age group for every homeless child in the city, whether they're in a domestic violence shelter or any shelter, not just our shelters, but any shelter across the system. So we've made a very uh, risky uh, decision, but it is, it, it's true to who we are. We don't think that we'll be able to do the teams that we used to do at the big sort space where corporations would send 40 people at a clip and we'd take all the supplies and we'd stuff them in the backpacks and we'd logistically send them out. So we had to come up with a COVID-19 approach. And this approach is that we're going to, instead of raising um, supplies and teams to come and do that, we're gonna raise money and we're going to buy pre-packaged sets for third grade, fourth grade with the specific, and they're gonna come in boxes. And then we're going to purchase beautiful quality backpacks and the shelters are going to come and they're going to take oh okay you have 25 third, third graders 15 okay here's your packets here's your backpacks take them back to your shelter and fill them we have to prepare not to be able to be together to do this which is a wonderful wonderful community feeling now if things are sort week is usually august 24th i don't know george i don't, I don't think so but if there is an opportunity to do some social distancing, we'll do it. But at least we, we think if we can be successful in saying to the city that has always supported this, now more than ever, don't send us your pencils, send us your dollars, because we're going to meet the need regardless. And whether these kids will be returning to a physical building or still learning from home, they will need supplies. Well, we checked that out. We wanted to make sure, you know, they all have their... Uh, devices from the Board of Education, but we said to the Board of Education, do they still need these supplies? And they said, absolutely. These are the notebooks, the um, you know, everything you can imagine, the calculators. Uh, um, you know, the kids aren't uh, are terrifically motivated right now. I, I don't know if you have any at home, but homeschooling is, is very, very difficult. We also think that this is going to be a catalyst to regenerate and re-motivate the kids that this is your backpack, school year is starting again, whenever that is, and let's go. But the Board of Ed and every shelter that we've contacted said, please, 
please don't abandon us this year. We need you more than ever. How many kids are there in New York City who are experiencing homelessness? How many do you serve? Um, well, the system, not us. Um, uh, I'm going to say it's anywhere between 18 and 19,000. Mm -hmm. um, remember, there's school-aged and non-school-aged. So we do a, a pre-K backpack, and but so the number may be slightly different, and it does vary, as you can imagine. You said earlier that seniors obviously are particularly vulnerable. Can you talk more about what you are doing to assist the city seniors? Oh, absolutely. Um, we have a wellness program, and um, in our senior, um, and the the age of seniors in the populations that we deal with, you can be a, a frail senior at 58. It, you don't have to be the 80-year-old who has a cane because of maybe a very tough life and um, you know some comorbidity and diseases and chronic illness. You're frail at a much younger age, and the things that we're watching out for in our wellness program is social isolation, um, maybe some increased substance use to deal with their anxiety, and fear of going to the emergency room. So um, the city and the funders have been absolutely fabulous in uh, supplying the three meals a day that are needed, but we know that there are some e seniors who may not like what they're getting and so we do grocery runs and we order from Instacart and do all things like that. We have a pantry um, and, and then we check on them and we check on them frequently just to have eyeball to eyeball, um, making sure that they're not saying to us on the phone, oh, I'm absolutely fine. And you know, we go into their room and see that they haven't eaten the meals in three days. So um, it's, it's kind of like big brother, big sister approach. I was perusing your website and looking at some of the other programs that you have, and a couple caught my attention, one called Brightening Birthdays. Yes. What's that all about? Well, normalcy is out the window for all of us. Uh, on the course that I just took this morning, we were, they were talking about, you know, birthday parties and you can't blow the candles out and no graduations and all these things. You hadn't thought about the candles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but... What's interesting is the children that we serve in our homeless shelters and our domestic violence shelter, it's not COVID-19 that took normalcy away from them. It is their life and in their environment and the struggles their families are having. So brightening birthdays, um, let's say we're in the month of May. So every child that is in the shelter and has a birthday in the month of May and their parent, um, um, and sometimes their siblings if there's nobody else to watch them, um, are invited to a birthday party. And they get a one, two, sometimes three gifts. Um, they get, uh, uh, we do cupcakes <laughs> with candles and not big cakes. Um, has that struggled during this time? Absolutely. Is the shelter staff doing everything it can to bring things up to a room or invite um, five kids at a time to a big community room? We're doing everything we can but it's all about our belief that normalcy, and that's why Operation Backpack is so important, normalcy is going to help these families. Terry, if you could ask the founders of VOA, Maud, and Ballington Booth one question, what would you want to ask them? How did they sustain their inner strength in times like this? And, and they did. And, and 
you know, we are, we're positive thinkers. Um, we have to be with what we're dealing with. Uh, the essential of essential worker. So that would be my question. And I have to tell you, I think for Maud and Ballington, it was faith-based. Um, doesn't matter in my book what faith it is. It could be faith in humanity, but it has to come from inside. And, and I, I think that's what I'm witnessing with all of our staff and our clients have been so wonderful. It's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. This organization was there during the Spanish flu in 1918, yeah. right? Yep, yep, yep. And um, every big hurdle that this organization, even across the country, we have an affiliate in Puerto Rico. Imagine how they've been devastated. And they have come back stronger every single time. The fires and floods in Texas, our friends in California. Uh, we have an affiliate in Kirkland, Washington, one of the biggest hotspots in the country. Um, perseverance, um, positivity, uh, hopefulness. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that Maud, Maud Booth's name wasn't Hope Booth because that's what she, that's what she gave everybody was hope. So if anyone wants to get involved with the organization, how can they go about doing that? I think the website gives you many, many opportunities. Um, I would ask you to spread the word that Operation Backpack season is about to kick off early because we're going to have to do this uh, rather unusual um, method this year. So it, it is simply, you know, www.voa-gny.org. Um, uh, All right, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. George, thank you. Thanks for reaching out and you be well. Terry Pettit is the president and CEO of Volunteers of America, Greater New York. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Keep up with Cityscape on social media. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter at WFUV Cityscape. Thanks so much for listening.